7, we'll see that despite the fact, or at least the statement of the fact, that the kingdom is here, that the king is here, what else is still here? Sickness. Death. Next week, great, gross sin. And that's in chapter 7 with Jesus at work, the king, the son of God. And another curious thing, 2,000 years later, what do we have? Well, there's still a lot of sickness and a lot of death, a lot of very damaging sin, which, which makes you wonder, are you, are you serious, Jesus? Are you really the king that came to bring the kingdom? In other words, when, when Jesus and the kingdom clash with the brokenness of the world, one of the things that sprouts up in chapter 7 and here and now, and every time in between, is something we call doubt. Doubt. Is it really true? Are you really changing things? Can I really believe this? And so today we'll be looking at faith and doubt and, uh, and Jesus. And I'm really excited about this. So let's jump into our text. It's Luke chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 1 to 35. Away we go. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and I will let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Did not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I said, You will rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet's arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding countryside. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And when the men would come to him, uh, when the men had come to him, they said, "John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, "Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another?" And in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And Jesus answered them, "Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them." 
and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children. Sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet wisdom is justified by all her children. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Great Father, we ask that you would show us wonderful things in your law tonight. Show us especially you, Lord Jesus, and and the goodness of your character that we might know you and trust you. And for those here that uh, don't know you or are highly doubtful, we pray that you would be kind uh, to show yourself. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I forgot to mention that this is a Q&A night, meaning uh, you are free. More than free, you are encouraged to text your questions to what is Callie's phone. So as I speak, if something occurs to you from the text or something I say, and uh, you would like us to address it, text that to her, and afterwards we'll spend a little time trying to address your questions. All right, I'm going to start off with uh, something I don't usually do. I usually try and grab you with an exciting story. Don't have one. So I'm going to try and grab you with a compelling quote, and this is going to be a lot harder to pull off, but here we go anyway. Uh, This appeared uh, this week in a a major publication. A philosopher named uh, Jamie Smith, it's actually his name is James, but I call him Jamie. We're close. was writing an article on a philosopher named Charles Taylor. He's a well-known uh, professor who's uh, written a, a huge book on our current secular age. The, the article is called How My Millennial Students Found Their Hitchhiker's Guide to a Secular Age. This is the quote. I'm going to read it carefully. For many who have strong beliefs, living in a world that is secular, saying we live in a Western secular society, living in a world that is secular is to experience belief haunted by doubt almost daily. And then that doubt itself is haunted by an enduring longing for something more, what Charles Taylor calls a fullness, a sense of significance that has the punch of transcendence about it, even if we believe this world is all we have. All right, what, uh, what Charles Taylor is saying and what Jamie Smith is relaying is uh, that we live in a, in a world that's a little different than what we typically think. We, we tend to oversimplify faith and doubt and imagine believers and unbelievers uh, as sort of uh, on opposite ends of the spectrum, mutually exclusive, non-overlapping, like two rival impenetrable forces, and uh, everyone's got their jersey and contract, and you can't really switch sides very easily. 
That's the way we tend to imagine faith and doubt. And uh, Charles Taylor and Jamie Smith are saying, it's not like that. It's really not. Uh, In fact, he would say that believers today are almost constantly wrestling with issues of doubt. And uh, wrestling through those issues. And that there are those who are not believers, who are consciously unbelievers, who are trying to wrestle through faith. Or even potentially fend off faith. They want faith. They want something transcendent. Something that feels like significance. Even though they deeply believe that there's nothing like that. Uh, I love that quote because I think it really gets at the complexity of a couple things. The human heart. Faith and doubt all mixed up at once. And this current culture that we live in. This is what it's like uh, today. And... uh, I want to give a little proviso right here real quick. Um, it could be really easy for us to get stuck in our heads tonight. This is a, this is a topic, faith and doubt and epistemology, how we know things uh, that I love. And I could uh, climb into the merry-go-round of my head and spin and spin and spin. And uh, you say, when do I get off? And uh, I want to assure you that although I'm not going to run away from the philosophical questions... Uh, that's not where we're going to spend most of our time. Uh, We're not going to run away from the main point, the thing that's most clear in this text. And what's most clear in this text is that Jesus gives us a reason to believe. Jesus gives us reason to believe, and he's very patient about the process. That's what's clear in this text, and I want us to see it tonight. We have really... uh, two interesting things going on with two very different kinds of people. We have model faith and model doubt. In our text tonight, we'll see model faith and model doubt. And what's really surprising is if you had to assign roles for this play, you would think that the Bible and Jesus got it all wrong. Because the person that's supposed to be doubting should be like this this Roman butcherer, the centurion. And the person that should be believing on Jesus' team is this guy called John the Baptist. And somehow they got miscast in this play. It's not what we expect, which I think is so realistic. This is what it's like. So let's talk about model of faith. Again, we have an unusual case. We have verse, first like 10 verses here. We have a centurion that's a Roman soldier who is serving in the Galilean area. Uh, that's not unusual. What's unusual is he's a God-fearer. The Jews actually like this guy. And uh, they think he's worthy of Jesus to help. And so this guy, who's an outsider, he's a Gentile, uh, has a servant who's sick that he cares about. That's a little bit unusual. And he's willing to come to Jesus. And you add all this up, and this is a really unusual case. An outsider who's a God-fearer who has a servant, and, and Jesus does the whole transaction, the whole thing, without ever meeting the centurion or the servant. It's a long-distance thing. Pretty interesting and unusual. And, uh, and it might be interesting, you might look at this text and say, like, man, this is just extraordinary. This is unusual. And it is unusual. But what we see in this man's faith, I don't think is extraordinary. I think it's exemplary. It's the way it's supposed to be, actually. So this centurion, I want us to study his faith, see what happens, and then think about how it applies to us. So um, the interesting thing about this guy that stands out above everything else, beyond the circumstances, beyond what the Jews think about him, is his apprehension of Jesus' authority. 
So, yeah. You know, I don't want to retell the whole story, but Jesus is on the way. And he sends some people and says, don't even bother. I know how it is. I'm a man under authority. I know how the world works. Just say the word and he'll be healed. Somehow this man who's a soldier, who has a brutal knowledge of the way the world works, is able to extrapolate from that experience and look at Jesus and what he knows about Jesus from a distance and say, here's a man who has the right, the position, the authority and the ability to heal my servant with a word from a distance. He understands Jesus' ability and authority, his right and his ability and his power. And he says, Jesus, you don't even have to come. You don't have to see him. You don't have to like dance a jig or rub some mud together or do a trick. I know your ability. I know your power. I know your authority. Just say the word. This is such remarkable faith that Jesus... You know, the Son of God actually turns to like everyone who's been following him and saying, I've never seen anything like this. N- never. Like, he's basically saying to about the people of Israel, you've had like insider knowledge of me and what God's like, and yeah, you're believing and following me. That's great. This is amazing. And he praises the man's faith because he understands Jesus' authority and his ability. A couple of correlates of this are really interesting and important. If this is true for the centurion, it's true for us. This is why we pray for other people. The fact that Jesus is powerful enough to act on someone from a distance when they don't even ask for it themselves, we're asking Jesus to do something for someone else. That's called intercessory prayer. We do it. We have good reason to do it. Uh, secondly, this is sort of a, the flip side. That's the good news of Jesus' authority. Here's sort of the bad side. This is one of the catch-22s of like modern skepticism and unbelief. Uh, we, we, by nature, can't really believe in a God that's too weak to believe in, that's pathetic and puny. It's sort of like that puny God line from the first Avengers movie after the Hulk finishes Hulk smashing the guy. Puny God. Uh, yeah, 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 I'm not afraid of you at all. You're not a God. Dismiss. But also, we are scared to death and allergic to any God that's great because we don't want to answer to any authority greater than ourselves. You got that? It's true. We're allergic to any authority greater than ourselves. What we want is a genie, not a God. We want a God that's powerful that answers to us and gives us what we want. We don't want a God. We want a genie. Because we're not convinced God is good. And what we see in this account and the next one is His goodness. Jesus is not just filled with great authority and power, he is willing to help. You, you see that. They, they come and they beg Jesus. They're giving reasons why he should come. And like, he's like, I'm coming. Like Verse 6, like, I'm on the way. He's willing to help. Uh, you see it even more so in the next account. This widow. If you notice, no one asks him to do anything. At all. Zero asking. He just sees What's going on? He knows the pain. He knows the loss. The text makes it clear he had compassion. That's a, a, a you know it's a feeling word, but in the original language it's a it's a gutty, moving feeling uh, from the heart. Jesus' heart moves toward her, and he this is authority. Stop the funeral. He stops the funeral procession. Like 
Someone was telling me recently they got like, like cut off a, a funeral procession. Like they got angry because they didn't know, and they like cut a funeral procession off like all the cars. Well, Jesus like does that on purpose. He's like, stop the cars. <laughs> that's uh, that's strange behavior. But then he does something amazing. It's interesting. The, the centurion says, you can heal him with a word. To our knowledge, he doesn't use any words. He actually is like, actually, I can do it without a word. Uh, the guy's just healed. But here he says some words. The main one being, arise, and he raises the dead. And gives the son back to the mother. Uh, what we really see here are, are the wedding of two really important things that we need in order to believe in God. That he's powerful, able, that he's an authority, but also that he's good, that he cares, that he's compassionate, that he can and that he cares. And uh, this is really important. These are the main ingredients for faith. Faith is not based on our performance. It's not based on our worthiness. It's not manufacturing belief and trying to pump it up. It's, uh, it's not about the amount of your faith. It's seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus as he is. And then coming to him. I've shared this story before, and it's because it's an almost daily occurrence in my life. Well, my, my kids are afraid, and we haven't gotten out of that yet. And, you know, someone was asking, like, hey, are you guys going to go to the party and bring your kids? Or, or are you going to come to the wedding reception with your kids? And the answer is no, because I like to sleep. And my kids will be terrified forever. I mean, they're already terrified of things they have never seen yet. They just imagine them. And, and the way this typically works is when they're terrified, I'll come and they'll tell me what they were terrified of. And I have to say, like, that doesn't exist. This is not reasonable. And it doesn't work. And after a while, it, it eventually comes down to a power game. And the power game goes like this. Hey, listen. Who's the scariest thing in this house? What's the biggest, meanest, scariest thing in this house? And they'll think, and they'll look, they'll look, you are. And I'm like, that's right. Me. I'm the biggest, meanest thing in this house. I am. And I'm on your side. I am not going to let anything happen to you. That knowledge, my authority and power and ability, and the fact that I care for them, and the fact that they can come to me in need, is what helps my kids rest. That's what faith is. Uh, One of the great theologians, John Calvin, put it this way. Faith is not just some distant knowledge. It's a warm embrace of Jesus. It's not just knowing about him. It's knowing him and coming to him. That's what model faith is. It's not a perfect faith. It's not an admirable faith. It's knowing Jesus as he is and coming to him. A couple warnings about this. We're going to move on to the next point. Uh, Beware presumption. Do you know what presumption is? The centurion does. He says in verse 7, verse 7 up there, basically, the, 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 uh, the Jews say about him, this man's worthy to help you, for you to help. And, and the centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come. I have no right. I have no claim on you. I don't want to presume upon you. And presumption is thinking, I have the right. I have the claim. Jesus, we're cool. I can come back to this later. I can put this off. That is presumptuous. And it's my basic, deep-rooted belief, this, uh, it'll make more sense as we go along, that no one goes to hell for doubt. People go to hell for presumption. We're thinking, we're good. We're good. We'll be all right. I'll figure it out later. I don't need this. I'll come back to it when I need it. And uh, that is a dangerous position because you're not moving toward Jesus at all. 
And, and secondly, this is the important takeaway from this. If faith is rightly knowing Jesus and moving toward Him, then it's all of our responsibilities to get to know Jesus. And He wants to be known. So we're going to see that in the next point here, actually. Uh, so Jesus, sort of summary for the first point, Jesus is uh, knowing Him and trusting in Him is reasonable because He wants to be known. And trusting Him is reasonable because He's powerful and He's good. He can do so, He cares, and He wants to do so. And uh, usually there would be someone here at least, and if not tonight, then you know someone like this who would say, that's really cute. Jesus can and Jesus cares. That's great. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he do something about Syria? Why doesn't he do something about my aunt who has cancer? Why doesn't he do something about these kids who have lifelong illnesses and suffer until they're 22 and die? Why doesn't he do something about all the brokenness and sickness in the world? Why doesn't he? And that's a great question. That's actually the hardest question. And uh, in some ways, those are the kind of questions that John is asking. John is modeling for us doubt. Uh, this is John the Baptist. I want to review, if you weren't here earlier, and remind you how interesting and strange this is that John gets cast in the role of model doubt here. This is Jesus' cousin. They've known each other forever. He is the prophet who only a couple chapters ago was proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins ahead of the coming one. He himself baptized Jesus and said that Jesus is the one who's come to take away the sins of the world. He gave some of his own personal followers over to follow Jesus. Okay? This has all happened in the past. And now he's asking, are, are, are you really the one? John is in a place of serious doubt. And it might be easy to look at his circumstances. If you don't know, he's in prison. He will probably be executed soon. He does get executed soon. Uh, and some of his doubt may have to deal with his circumstances. But it's more than that. It's more than that. I think actually what's really going on with John, what's really at the heart of his doubt, is his expectations. It's, uh, it's, it's not what he doesn't know. It's what he believes. So John asked in verse 19, and his disciples, like word for word, come to Jesus and said, John asked, are you the one? Are you the one? Um, and what's going on is John comes and asks Jesus, hey, are you, are you the guy that we're supposed to be waiting for? Are you the promised one? And I think what's not stated in this question is, because you're not living up to the profile of what I expected. If you go back and read those first couple chapters and hear what John is saying both in his message and about the one who's coming, he's predicting stuff like fire. Winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. The axe is laid to the base of the tree. What does John expect? Judgment. John expects the coming one to fix everything quickly, powerfully, spectacularly. What does Jesus do? First day on the job, preaches a sermon in his hometown, they almost throw him off a cliff. That's no exaggeration. <laughs> then, one by one, starts going around and healing people like, I don't know, lepers, and uh, hanging out in fishing boats with disciples, collecting fishermen to follow him. I mean, do you get the, the, the radical difference in expectations here? John expects Jesus to like march to Jerusalem, declare judgment on the temple, overthrow the kingdom, and get on with the judgment. Just fix everything. And Jesus is like, 
one by one fishing for people, healing stepmothers. That's what he's doing. And calling people to follow him one by one. Radically different expectations. And I think John is really genuinely perplexed and saying, do I have the right guy? This is not what I expected. He has a predetermined portrait of what the Messiah was supposed to be like, the king was supposed to be like, what God was supposed to be like. And this is really important for us to look and see. This is why it's modeled out. Because he he moves toward Jesus. He actually asks. He sends. By the way, interesting note. He's able to send his disciples to Jesus. Which means it's quite possible that the prison systems of the ancient world were more humane than ours. Anyway. um, But Jesus doesn't shame him for his question doesn't humiliate him doesn't say like come on John you know me or even more so like hey we're in the middle of a revolution here you know it's like my cousin and like the, the guy that handed over the keys to the ministry it'd be great if like you towed the party line come on it, it, there's no shame at all from Jesus regarding John's doubt. Not the slightest bit. Instead, what he does is he provides evidence. He provides evidence. This is really important. And frankly, the Bible does this all over the place. Jesus is interested in providing evidence. And this is contra all kinds of new uh, radical atheist thinkers, like especially like Richard Dawkins, who defines faith as belief in spite of, perhaps even because of, a lack of evidence. That's his definition of faith in his book, The God Delusion. Uh, Jesus wants to provide evidence. John, you're having trouble with doubting me. Well, gentlemen, tell John what you see and what you hear. We call that empirical evidence. Tell him what you see and hear. Then he goes on to to illuminate what that is, that the the blind receive sight, and uh, the prisoners are freed, and the lame walk. And the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus is not only making it clear to John, like, here's the evidence. He's saying, hey, I'm going around and telling everyone, everyone, who I am and that the kingdom is here. I'm making it known to everyone. Jesus wants to provide evidence so that John can believe. And this is the last real point, uh, but it's really important. And he provides an easy way back. Look at verse 23. At the end of his statement to John, his last words to John are, Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Is that little, I see some furrowed brows. A little enigmatic, right? Anybody confident they know what this means? I'll give you your diploma from college right now, if you can tell me. Although I don't have that authority. Neither the right nor the ability. Um... It's really interesting. Yeah, I think part of it is the language. It's hard. But part of it is, I really think what Jesus is saying here is so gracious. It's beyond our our ability to think this is feasible. In some ways, this is too good to be true. We expect Jesus to say, like, get your act together, man, and believe. And what Jesus actually is doing for John, I think, is setting the bar, if you will, of faith. Like, way down here. Way down here. John, I know what I'm doing is radically different than what you thought. But because I'm different, if you can accept what I'm doing and you don't throw the whole thing overboard and you come and trust in me, blessed are you. He's not saying, like, 
blessed are you if you believe absolutely everything if you're strong in your faith if if your faith endures forever he's literally saying john if you can get over being offended and troubled by the way i'm doing things i'll take that he's setting the bar for faith from john really low that's like the bare minimum amount of faith like don't be offended by what i'm doing john uh, this, is, this is what Jesus does, and this, it surprises us. He is gentle with those who doubt, and he is nursing faith. He really is. Um, Jesus is being incredibly kind and uh, willing to trust the process of providing people evidence so they can know him and come to him. And uh, again, you don't need extraordinary faith. You don't need to know everything. But a reasonable faith is based on knowing who Jesus is. Knowing he's reliable, that he's great and good, and coming to him and trusting in him. I'm going to close with a couple last thoughts, and then we're going to go into the Q&A after we sing a song. The last couple verses that that, uh, Jesus and Luke provide here are really educational for us regarding uh, faith and doubt. They say some pretty important things, both for us as individuals and our culture. I just want to point out some of them real quick. I already said this regarding John, but I think it's important for us. We think doubt is an absence of belief, and it's not. Doubt, like in John's case, is not an absence of belief. It's actually that you just believe something else. You have a different portrait of the way things should be, or even what God should be like. And uh, often, people that doubt, they, they don't want God, the God of the Bible. They want a different kind of God, or a genie. Uh, And so those expectations we have are real. John is struggling with expectations. Expectations that Jesus should be a certain way and that God should fix things right now. And that uh, he he should be busy doing this in spectacular ways. And instead, Jesus is like healing stepmothers in, in, in the current version, analogously, of like northern Idaho. That's what he's doing. He's not working in Manhattan. He's working in northern Iowa. Or something in Capernaum, healing grandmothers and calling lepers. And he's offended by it. And he's confused by it. And in the same way, very similarly, those who say, I will believe in God just as soon as he fixes everything. Just as soon as all the sickness and sin and death is gone, then maybe I can believe in him. Well, I want you to think about what you're really asking for. Or what your friends might be asking for when they ask for that. What they're actually asking for without knowing it is what the Bible calls judgment. The way God finally fixes everything in the end is to remove everything that's evil by means of judgment. Everything. Is that actually what you want? Because you're part of that equation. You've hurt people. Your parents have hurt people. I'm not saying you're murderers, but we're all guilty. We're all complicit. We live in a world where we all hurt each other. Um, Do you really, really want God to fix everything? Do you really want God to fix you? Is that what you really want? I actually don't think you do. Most of us really don't want God to fix everything. We don't mind if we're doubting skeptics to throw that out there, but actually I don't think we really do want them to fix everything. We want them to fix us anyway. So what then is God doing? What is Jesus doing if he's not fixing everything? The Bible is actually really clear about this. He's being patient. He's being patient with us. 
He's being patient with people so we have the opportunity to know who he is and come to him in repentance and faith. That is what the Bible says over and over. He's willing to let the good and the bad coexist for a long time in order that as many people as possible can come to know him. That's why it's like it is. It really is. That's why it's like it is. Uh, last two points. Uh, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. And uh, you see this in verses 31 and 32. Jesus tells us, again, sort of strange, enigmatic story. What shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? This generation just means today, but I'm pretty convinced this is every day ever since. They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to each other, Hey, we played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We sang a song for you. You didn't weep. And he goes on to say, basically, look, John came and that dude was dead serious. He was playing the blues. He was playing funeral dirges. And you basically said, that guy's way too serious. So Jesus came and Jesus is playing an upbeat pop song. He's hanging out with sinners and calling people to join him. And you say, no, no, no. Way too much fun. And what Jesus is saying is, in every generation there are people who say, who say, yeah, we'll believe if you just show us something. Just give us evidence. But it actually doesn't matter what you show them. It doesn't matter what tune you play. They are obstinate. Theirs doesn't matter. The difference between unbelief which refuses to move no matter what song is being played, and doubt is what we see in both the centurion and in John. They're willing to ask questions. They're willing to move. They're moving toward Jesus. Whether in faith or in doubt, they're moving toward Jesus. And uh, that's what I would invite you to do. Jesus is is gentle with those who doubt. Jesus is... uh, Kind, He's able. He's willing to show you himself. It's up to us. Both as those who believe and those who don't. Those who have friends that aren't believers. To all come together. To come to know him. Because he wants to be known. Because he shows himself to be kind. And powerful. And caring. And he wants us to know him. Alright, I'm going to pray.